Making Rainbow Waves, a podcast by Ilga World. Welcome everybody to Making Rainbow Waves, a podcast by Ilga World, telling the stories and raising the voices of LGBTI human rights defenders worldwide. My name is Daniele Paletta and this week we're going to talk about a report detailing the impact of laws and policies on trans persons across the globe. The Trans Legal Mapping Report is the latest publication released by us at Ilga World. And I'm here today with two colleagues of mine, Julia Ert, who is the Director of Programs at Ilga World, and with San Chiam, who has led the Gender Identity and Gender Expression Program for five years, and has also been the author of all the editions of the Trans Legal Mapping Report that we have released so far. So, welcome, Julia and San. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Daniele. Okay, uh, so let's start a conversation today. We've just released the Trans Legal Mapping Report, so first of all, congratulations to you. And yeah, can you just tell us what the report is about and how is it structured? Um, so I guess that's for me. Um, <laughs> so the Trans Legal Mapping Report, um, we have been doing it since 2016, and this is the third edition. Um, the first two editions in 2016 and 17 were only covering legal gender recognition processes for trans people around the world. So legal gender recognition, we um, interpret that as meaning a person's ability to change their name or their gender markers um, in laws or policies or administrative processes. And then this edition, we decided to add a new chapter, which is we called it criminalization. Uh, so in some of the countries you'll see, you see um, the possibility for the person to change their name or gender marker or not. And then you'll see after that um, a chapter on how criminal laws are used against trans people in that country. Um, for criminal laws, we have divided them into two parts. So one part is direct criminalization and the other part is indirect criminalization. Um, and the direct criminalization, we've called it de jure or de jure criminalization. And for indirect, we've called it de facto. In a way, you could say that maybe the impacts of the laws might not be that different um, on the lives of trans people. Um, so there are 13 countries where trans people are directly criminalized. So which means that um, in either a piece of legislation or in um, a religious law of that country, it says that uh, a person, um, for example, it will say something like um, a man is not allowed to wear women's clothes or something like that. Um, and and those are um, the URA criminalization. So we say that there's actually a law that actually targets uh, someone's gender identity or gender expression. And then on the opposite side, you have what, what we have called de facto uh, criminalizing examples, which means that they are basically um, where we have found evidence of the police or the authorities using laws that on the face of it do not target trans people, but have used those laws to target trans people. So those laws could be laws relating to sex work, vagrancy, loitering, drug laws, nuisance, any range of laws that have that we have received examples of how they were used to target trans people. I see. So basically, there's a very wide range of laws that uh, that can be used. I guess the effect for, for people on the ground is really that 
they can be constantly targeted and they probably don't even know where the like the legal official threat is coming from and what form will it take is that correct yeah exactly i think what we were trying to show with this report um was systemic oppression of trans people um and how the criminal system is used to control people's gender expressions and also to control people's gender identities for example in if you look at um the examples that that were recorded it's not in the countries where there was actual so it's not in those 13 countries where you know there were actual criminalizing specifically to trans people that the most numbers of instances took place so it was you know in in other countries as well where there were de facto laws that were used against trans people where there were also lots of human rights abuses and discrimination against people what i what i found particularly interesting about this report is that it is a combination of desk based research so it's like the research on laws and and books but it also collects the uh the experience of lots of trans activists and trans people on the ground to see how actually these laws uh impacts them how did you how did you work on that research how did you get in touch with all these people yeah so there were um we were a team of um a group of different researchers so some people worked just on one region and some people worked across a couple of regions some of the researchers worked only on criminalization and some worked only on legal gender recognition but the ones who worked on criminalization really had to make contact with um activists on the ground to double check the information and to get um the examples we also used um you know really useful resources like human rights watch reports the human dignity trust report last year on trans criminalization so these also form a kind of blueprint for us uh to start our our different research in different regions um but yeah it definitely did rely a lot on people making contact uh with activists in different countries the latin american researcher um mati she is really well connected in her region and so you can just get a sense of like for example the footnotes um for Latin America there's so many different organizations and activists that are listed there um and same for the African researcher Nigel so they collected um uh, you know and was in contact with a lot of uh, uh activists on the continent the report talks not only about criminalization of trans persons but also about legal gender recognition We asked Sun what is the situation right now around the world and whether there have been countries in the past years where significant advances have been seen in this regard. The report does list um a number of countries that have advanced so by advanced we mean either finally allowing a legal gender recognition process in that country or making the process less discriminatory or have less obstacles for people. For more states in Australia that's been possible. Belgium, Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, France, Greece, and Luxembourg. There's been advances in Pakistan and also hopefully finally in Vietnam. Even if laws are positive and progressive on paper, however, the lived reality for trans people on the ground can be way different. I think that positive laws um in very many cases do have positive impacts on the lives of trans persons however the absence of positive laws does not necessarily have 
mean that this state is a bad state for a trans person to live in. So usually in most states in which um, laws are introduced that either protect or recognize trans persons, that will have a positive effect on the lives of trans persons. Of course, not on the life of every trans person. And then there's, of course, as well, a lot of intersectional discrimination in the trans community. So not everyone will benefit in the community to the same extent from a positive law. But in general, I think a positive law introduced in a state will have a positive effect. The way how this report was conducted, in, in particular when it comes to criminalization, shows both the big strength of this report, but as well its limitation. The report, as Sana said, is very strongly informed by the trans community in the various states or in the various regions um, that the research was conducted. But when it comes to criminalization, in particular, when we look at the de facto criminalization, the report relies on reports of cases from the community, um, which is, of course, the way how the the facto criminalization needs to be researched. The limitation of that is, of course, that only because we have not found a case in a specific country, it does not mean that in this country there's no de facto criminalization. It's just It just means that mm-hmm. we did not find a case. It's very difficult to say these are the states that have de facto criminalizations and these are the states that, have to, that do not have this de facto criminalization because... It's about finding cases, and there might be cases, and in fact, very likely, there are many cases which um, this research was not mm. able uh, to unearth. I do agree with that. I think it was a method methodological conundrum for us, because even though we really wanted to cover criminalization um, as the next area for this report, the, the very nature of the way that you collect it like you said, you know, is you have to go through the, the evidence first before you find the law, if you think of it that way. And it's just so time consuming that if you really wanted to do, you know, every single country in the world or as many as you could, it would take a very, very long time or a very big team to actually be able to do it. Um, so, so, yeah, so this was a, a bit of a ethical dilemma in a way. Um, we, we knew we wanted to cover it, but we knew that we couldn't cover uh, as much as we wanted to. The debate about legal gender recognition has been really, really heated, especially in the past few years and especially in a few countries. And it almost seems like whenever there has been a discussion on legal gender recognition, the hostility against the trans community has advanced in equal ways. I asked Julia and San if this is something that they have witnessed as well, and why do they think this is happening? Mm, yeah, so um, I think like there's some obvious countries where there's been very public anti-trans rhetoric and so this has impacted on legal gender recognition processes or there's been a legal gender recognition process and the anti-trans rhetoric has come in and made it more difficult to advance. So like in the UK uh, for the Gender Recognition Act, that process has solved. Um, for New Zealand, they weren't able to advance their birth certificate change process. Um, and, you know, those have been definitely the, the result of um, anti-trans lobbying. But then there's also countries that mysteriously 
I, and I say mysteriously, kind of half jokingly, but it is kind of like mysteriously, things have just gone backwards. So in Mongolia and Kazakhstan, the 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 age of consent for trans people has has gone up. The the, the requirements have become more onerous. And then Japan had a had a court decision that confirmed the sterilization requirement for people in Japan. So you know, on, on the face of it, and in talking to activists from those countries, on the face of it, it's not the result, or there's no there's no seeming connection with um, any kind of obvious anti-trans agenda. But you really have to wonder what it actually means when it is quite obvious in different regions of the world that there is quite public anti-trans debate. So, yeah, I don't really understand that. It, I'm hoping that the report and reports like this can kind of bring this to people's attention and, you know, those who are interested to investigate a bit further about the trends can can be um, motivated to do so. Yeah, and maybe I can add, do we see a backlash in states that have introduced um, good trans legislation, in particular legal gender recognition? I think there is, as Tan has as well explained, but I think there's another reason why we see um, trans-related backlash, which has nothing to do with um, introducing legal gender recognition or trans legislation, but it has more to do with the fact that anti-rights actors and right-wing and conservative actors are using trans issues in order to attack gender equality. So in a certain way, those opponents of ours are weaponizing trans issues in order to make political gains. Because the trans community is, one, very small. Um, we have we struggle to defend ourselves from these arguments. And it's very effective because these arguments that are you know, using an anti-trans narrative connect easily to a rather conservative and right-wing mainstream. That has proven an effective strategy to attack gender equality. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to do much with attacking trans rights. It's more about finding ways to take down the gains of the women's movement in a certain way by using anti-trans arguments. And that's what we see in Latin America. That's what we see in Eastern Europe. But I think there's a dimension of that in the in states like the UK and New Zealand as well. Right. And so like in countries like, for example, in Poland, where again, it's LGBT, so it's not trans specific, but this narrative of being LGBT is being against the, the Polish state or cultural identity. So yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a convenient way of invoking um, a certain ideology which is really sad <laughs> this narrative is really pervasive so a question is how can our communities fight back and more broadly what's next for trans rights how is the movement going to work from now on I will say something positive now, because I mean, despite what we what we just said about backlash, uh, the way how anti-trans arguments are used, I think still the general movement of development when it comes to trans rights and when it comes to the quality of life of trans people globally on average is positive. So we do still see a lot of progress. And I would say over the last decade, trans rights have made a lot of progress in 
many, many states around the world. However, I will as well say that trans rights started on a very, very, you know, low level. So the bar for making progress was was as well very low. Um, And there's still a long way to go. I do think there is still a momentum for positive legislation in regard to legal gender recognition. And we've just... um, seen the announcement of India to introduce legal gender recognition based on self-identification, which of course is a huge step. We don't know yet whether this will be as good as it sounds at the moment, but that remains to be seen. However, there is still a positive progress. Of course, legal gender recognition is not the only, um, by far not the only, area that where progress needs to be made. And uh, there's the qu- still the question of um, the impact of the reform of the ICD-11, i.e. the depathologization of trans people globally. And that has been, in a certain way, stalled a little bit with the COVID-19 crisis. That's at least our analysis. Um, and clearly, there's insufficient protection from violence across the board, which still needs to be addressed by our communities and by legislators. And then finally, coming to the backlash question, I think the way how to attack the backlash and the anti-trans narratives is by forming alliances, alliances with the women's movement and alliances with the broader human rights movement. Because I don't think that neither the trans community nor the wider LGBTI community stands a chance in counter-narrating these narratives alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was the first thing that I thought about as well, which is an actual real cross-movement dialogue and coalition. I think that a lot of the movements just don't understand each other. And, you know, really, people don't know each other. People don't don't know what each other are working on, which is a shame. So we need to get better at that. I think a lot of LGBTI activists get very siloed within LGBTI work and don't look further out, which is another shame. So so it, it's, yeah, for me, that would be the first step um, in, in what we can do, let's say, in the next two to five years. And then also, you know, making sure that we, we strengthen the mechanisms that we have, right? So the regional and international mechanisms to make sure that they stay informed and, you know, that they're protected and that they can continue to do their work. Uh, and you know, and that we continue to give them access to to the issues. So I think that is also very important. And and also to make sure that we we don't let things slip. So, for example, you know, in in the countries that I mentioned, you know, to actually like work out what the strategy is and 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 whether it's worth getting back the rights that people had before. To conclude our conversation, I've asked Zan about Ilga World's Gender Identity and Gender Expression program, which he has led for five years. What is the best memory of the work that he has done? You know, I think this report is actually a really nice memory. I mean, it's not a memory, it's a real thing, but <laughs> I think, you know, the report at the time when I was asked to do it, I just, I thought, oh no, this is going to take up half of my life. But in the end, it's turned out to be very satisfying. And meeting the researchers that I was lucky enough to find and to work with them has been a lot of fun, actually. And to learn about the situation 
in different parts of the world and to be actually actually able to compile it in a way that is hopefully coherent has brought me a lot of joy. And also, since this is about research, I think, yeah, it would be really nice to see where it can go after this. So what other kinds of research it can inform and how it can be used as more of a live tool. So that's not, it's not a memory, but it's a hope for this report that, you know, it becomes more of a, a live interactive you know, regularly updated resource that, that is useful. Thank you so much for being with us today and guiding through the France Legal Mapping Report. Um, it can be downloaded on our website, ilga.org. Uh, so please go there, uh, download it, share it with the world. Uh, we really hope it's going to be useful for trans and LGBTI advocacy all over the world. So use it and let us know what you think about it. And thanks again for following. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Making Rainbow Waves is a podcast by Ilga World. This episode was hosted and edited by Daniele Paletta. You can find every episode on all streaming platforms or on ilga.org. Thanks for listening.